Good morning. I'm Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you guys. For any who are new or haven't had a chance to meet just yet. Um, in our time this morning, we're going to, as Pastor Travis said, get to take a little bit of a deeper step into our series called The Sermon God Wrote, which is our verse-by-verse trek through uh, the book of Hebrews. And uh, more specifically today, we're going to get to work our way through a message that I've entitled, Maturity Matters. Maturity Matters. And the text that we'll be focusing on here is Hebrews 5.11 through chapter 6, verse 3. Again, as Pastor Travis mentioned, we're going to spend most of our time, though, on the verses, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5, which is the final set of verses in that chapter. We'll touch on the beginning of chapter 6, the first three verses, but they get their very own sermon next week. And uh, so we're not going to camp out there too long. We'll just use them as we need them. And then we'll save the rest for next week for Pastor Aaron. Now, leading up to our passage for this week is a unit of thought that starts way back in chapter 4, verse 14, and continues through what Pastor Aaron covered last week in the middle of chapter 5 in verses 7 through 10. And that whole section of Scripture, Hebrews 4.14 through 5.10, is at a high level a single unit of thought that's concerned with one big idea, and namely it's this, that Jesus is our great high priest— that Jesus is our great high priest. And this is really a theme that we see throughout the whole book of Hebrews. Those words, high priest, are used together 17 times in the 13 chapters of Hebrews, five times just in this section of 414 through 510, which leads up to our text for today. And when we see repetition like this in the scriptures, it's always a sure sign that it's something that God wants us to really focus on, right? And so apparently this reality of Jesus being our great high priest and all that's packed into that truth, and there is a lot that's packed into that truth, is a pretty big deal and something that God and the author of Hebrews really wants us to pay attention to. But he's not quite ready to unpack all of that for us just yet. He's going to get to it, especially in chapters 7 and 8. But first, in our text today, he wants to again do some teaching and pleading with both the doubting Christians who were his first audience and also with us. He wants to plead with them and us to be sober-minded and to take seriously some really matters of life and death concerning salvation in and faith in and devotion to Jesus. And so before diving in 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 future passages to some really difficult but critically important truths of God with his first hearers and listeners and us, he wants to offer us first a strong encouragement, an exhortation to chase hard after maturity in Christ with our whole mind and body and soul and spirit. This whole section really from 5.11 all the way up through 6.12, which we'll be working uh, out over the next couple weeks together, is a bit of a parenthesis. It's an excursus or it's a side conversation uh, in the shape of this strong exhortation that increasingly is going to escalate into a strong warning to the original audience of Hebrews and to us. And so starting in verse 11 of chapter 5 with a pastor's heart, the author of Hebrews admonishes us to make a choice to either press deeper or to risk falling away. To press deeper or to risk falling away. Said another way, he wants to teach us today that maturity matters. Maturity matters. And this is the word of our Lord from the book of Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, 
not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of a faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Sound City, may we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you today for another opportunity to gather together as your people and to hear from you through your word. You have each of us here today to, to grow us in relationship with you, to grow us in wisdom of you, Lord, so that you can move us, as your word says, from one degree to the next on towards full maturity in you. And so I pray to that end for myself and all these friends gathered here today that you would get me out of the way as your imperfect servant, and that in your grace to us, you would grow and mature each one of us today, Lord. And I pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So this is the Big Picture Story Bible. And it's the Bible that we bought for Dylan, our oldest son, as soon as he was old enough to have any interest in reading books at all or even looking at the pictures at all. And I had done some research around the time that he was born and tried to find the best kid's Bible I could, and that's the one that I found. It's got great pictures in it that kept his interest, and while the language is really basic, it's surprisingly solid biblically and theologically. A great kid's Bible. Can't recommend it highly enough for anyone who's in the market for uh, a kid's Bible. And this was the Bible that we read to Dylan from for the first few years of his life, all the time. And I know that he learned the first things that he learned about God outside of what mom and dad would have told him, he learned from this Bible. But what if the only Bible Dylan ever had, even as a 13-year-old today, was the big picture Bible that we started him with when he was one? Or what if in years to come as an adult, what if all Dylan learned about the Bible and about his understanding of God came from the big picture Bible. Do you think that would make a difference in his life? Do you think that would make a difference in his life? Of course it would. If the big picture Bible was all that Dylan ever had, he'd understand some basic truths about God. He'd know some stories from the Bible. But would he have had to wrestle through the harder, more complex truths of Scripture that really shape the way we respond to God and respond in life day to day? No. If the big picture Bible was all Dylan ever had for learning about the Christian life, he might have enough of an understanding about Jesus' death on the cross for his sins to put his faith in Jesus and be saved, which is of critical importance, of course. But would it have offered him enough depth and guidance for him to really thrive in living out the Christian life that God has called him to? If the big picture Bible was all Dylan ever had for learning about God and the life that He's called him, that God's called him to. He might have a belief that God is powerful, but would he understand the intricate truths about God's glory as our ultimate pursuit in life, about God's sovereignty in all things, about God's will being the predominantly active agent in our salvation rather than our own will? No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't understand such things because the big picture Bible wouldn't have given him the, the tapestry of biblical details needed that a mature study of God's word and therefore a mature relationship with Jesus would have offered him. 
the point I'm making is that maturity matters. Maturity matters. And I'd go even a step further, and I'd argue that our calling as Christians requires us to fight for maturity in Christ. Our calling as Christians requires us to fight for maturity in Christ. And this idea, this argument, we'll see it again and again in the scriptures during our time together today, and I think it's an important one for us to consider, one that we might too quickly overlook. So if you're not there already, let's turn in our Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll see what God has for us there. We'll start again in chapter 5 at verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now the word this here in verse 11 is kind of like when we see the word therefore. We want to ask always when we see such words, what's it there for? And so the this here in verse 11 is pointing to something, but what's it pointing to? Well, the subject being pointed to here is the couple verses prior. It's verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, which Pastor Aaron took us through last week. We'll look at them again here. Speaking of Jesus, they read like this, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So then in verse 11, the author of Hebrews is saying that there's a lot to say about these things that we just mentioned in verses 9 and 10. He's saying these things are really important for you as Christians to understand. He's saying it's critical that we grasp the fullness of what it means that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. He's saying it's critical that we grasp the fullness of this fact, that there's a relationship between Jesus being the perfect source of eternal salvation on the one hand and God having designated Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek on the other. That's what the author of Hebrews is really wanting to talk about. And these are the things about which he's saying there is much to say when he says that in verse 11. But there's a problem, right? Next, we see a problem. Why can't he talk with his readers and hearers about the beautifully intricate biblical truths that he so desperately wants to share with them? Apparently, according to verse 11, he can't talk with them about these truths of God because they are hard to explain. And even though he is talking about some really deep and complex truths of God, that's not why he's saying that it's hard to explain. He's saying they're hard truths to explain because his readers and his hearers, and if we can be gut-level honest in here today, probably some of us as well, have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Now, the word in the original Greek here is nothroi, which means dull, but not simply dull. It's dull in a personally negligent way. And so what he's saying is you become lazy or apathetic in your hearing concerning God. You've become sluggish in your listening concerning matters of faith. There's a Lutheran scholar um, in, in a commentary that said it this way. He said, unbelief closes the ears and incipient unbelief dulls them. I didn't know what incipient was. I had to look that up. That means more developed. Unbelief closes the ears and more developed unbelief dulls them. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? That's a powerful statement and it rings so true. Unbelief closes our ears and continued unbelief dulls them. Said another way, there's a clear link between belief and hearing. And when we stop to remember who the book of Hebrews' original audience was, all that makes even more sense. You'll recall from earlier sermons in our series that the first readers and hearers of the book of Hebrews were Jewish converts to Christianity. They were now, in the early years of the church, post-Jesus' ascension off the scene, 
they were beginning to doubt their faith in him as Lord and Savior. And with that being the case, the message and refrain of the author of Hebrews over and over again has been and will continue to be an exhortation to wake up and to not fall away from the faith in Jesus that they once claimed. And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 11, listening to a message, an exhortation, and the beginnings of a stern warning to those who were lukewarm in their faith. To those having perhaps one foot in and one foot out of a faith in Jesus. And to those who maybe aren't fully yet denying Jesus, but who are right on the line of doing so. If not through their words, then through their actions and through their inactions. And it's all of this that rests behind the scenes when in verse 11, he calls some in his audience and probably some of us as well, dull, lazy, sluggish in our learning and hearing with regard to faith. But he's not trying to be mean to them. He's not calling them names when he calls them dull of hearing. He's lovingly trying to reach them for the sake of their salvation, isn't he? Now, if that seems like a stretch, let's go back to verse nine for a second, where it says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he became the source of salvation for who? Those who obey him. So let me ask you this. How easy would it be for any of us to hear someone giving us an instruction and then to obey that instruction if we're covering our ears? Right? I mean, my kids have their headphones on, they're listening to music, they're playing games. They don't hear our instructions very well. It would be impossible for us to hear and to believe and to respond in obedience to what we've heard if our ears are covered, if our ears are dull. So what the author of Hebrews is trying to make clear is that a dullness of hearing concerning what the word of God says is a pretty dangerous condition for those who have just been called to salvation through hearing and believing and obeying Jesus. And since these verses aren't just intended for the original readers and hearers of the book of Hebrews, but also for us, let me ask, how's your hearing? How's your hearing, Sound City? When we read through verse 11 together, do you feel conviction? Does that stir something in you? Is God saying to you today, hey, there's so much more I want to tell you if you'd only focus and listen to me? Is God trying to tell you today, hey, there's so much more to following me. There's so much more joy I've called you to through life in me if you would just take your hands off of your ears and listen and obey me. Maybe for some of you here today, God's been trying to tell you for years to give your life to him for the very first time, to really hear him, to accept Jesus as the source of salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins and to commit to following him as Lord for the rest of your life. Maybe that's the message for some of you that you've gotten dull of hearing, and maybe that's why God has you here today. Sound City maturity matters, and our calling as Christians requires that we fight for maturity in him. But there's more for us to get to, so let's keep going. We'll pick up again in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Then he goes on from there to unpack this idea for them even further in verses 12 and 13, saying, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Well, as usual, the, uh, the author of Hebrews doesn't mince words here, right? In verse 12, he's saying something like, look guys, you've claimed to be Christians for some time now, 
but through your doubts and through your words and through your actions and through your inactions, all I'm led to believe is that all you can handle is the most basic truths about God and the shallowest of relationships with him. Then at the end of verse 12, and then again on through verses 13 and 14, he labors to explain their dangerous immaturity in faith another way by using this analogy, an analogy that compares milk with immaturity and solid food with maturity in the faith. In verse 13, then, uh, the author of Hebrews goes on to unpack that analogy further. He says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now, I want to come back and unpack that unskilled in the word of righteousness phrase a bit further, but let's come back to it after we get to verse 14, because that verse will inform the meaning of unskilled in the word of righteousness and what it means for us. So let's pick up again in verse 14, then. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here we begin to get a better picture of what the author of Hebrews understands the results of maturity in Christ to look like. He says, okay, in contrast to the milk drinker who's unskilled in the word of righteousness, those mature ones eating solid food can be described this way, as those who actively live out their faith and devotion to Jesus. Verse 14 saying, those who are mature in faith have been trained in it through constant practice, it says. Going further than the author of Hebrews says that those who live out and practice their faith constantly, what they're going to develop as a result is significant powers of wisdom and discernment that help them distinguish between what's good and righteous and what's sinful and wrong and evil. And now that we understand that, we can, with a, in a, from a better position, go back to verse 13 where we were asking what the author of Hebrews meant when he called the milk drinkers unskilled in the word of righteousness. And what we see when we look at verse 14 is that it's been placed kind of in opposition to verse 13. In other words, these verses are set to be a comparison with one another, one juxtaposed with the other. So in those, if those fighting for maturity in Christ are described as those who are constantly working to practice and live out their faith, and as those who in doing so will grow significantly in godly wisdom and discernment and in knowing his word and his will and his ways, then in verse 13, because these two verses are set in opposition to one another, we can see that the unskilled in the word of righteousness means something like the opposite of how the mature in faith were just described in verse 14. More simply, the unskilled in the word of righteousness are those who don't make it a priority to grow in their faith, those who don't grow in wisdom and discernment, and those who choose to live lives exercising only a childlike version of faith and desiring not to be bothered with maturity's promise of greater glory for God and greater joy for its suitor. What we end up with then is this picture, this picture of two very distinct and different types of people, one being the person of faith, who's in this ever active pursuit of a deeper wisdom of God and a deeper relationship with him through Jesus. This is the persevering and mature and maturing Christian that our text speaks of. And then there's the other person being pictured in our text, He's the dull of hearing and content to stay that way person of whom we might rightly ask, are they even Christians at all then? Now, why would I say that? Well, the author of Hebrews in chapter five, verse nine, which we just looked at, along with the rest of scripture, seem to have very little room for those who claim faith, but whose lives fail to match up with that claim in any way. And if that sounds too judgmental, then we take issue not only with the word of the author of Hebrews, but also with the words of Jesus himself. 
Because in Luke 6, 46, he says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is the way the author of Hebrews speaks in this sharp way, time and time again, in his sermon to his first hearers and in his letter to us now, with the hope of stirring up the affections of all that God is calling to himself. With the hope of reminding us of the relationship between genuine faith and the repentance and good works and life change that always accompanies salvation and a genuine submission of one's life to Jesus. He's wanting to jumpstart our active practice of and our perseverance in our faith in Jesus and to remind us that while we are surely saved by grace alone and through faith alone, that the faith that saves is never alone. The author of Hebrews is wanting to see his first hearers and us fight for maturity because he loves them and because he sees maturity in Christ as part of their calling and ours and because he sees understanding our faith in this way as potentially being a matter of eternal life and death, which it surely is. Some of you have heard me tell the story of the first church uh, that I was on pastoral staff with many moons ago. And uh, as I interviewed with that church for their discipleship pastor role, I began to realize that they are what's sometimes called a seeker church. And I'd never been part of a seeker church before, but I'd heard about them, and I thought I had a pretty good idea of what that meant. And I really, at the time, wasn't concerned that that would be a stumbling block for me or for us as I served on staff there. Well, I was wrong about that. Uh, And this would end up being a really hard season for us, but also a really fruitful season of significant growth. A season where I really learned to fall in love with Jesus' bride, the church, where I became really protective of her, and where I fell more in love with Jesus and his word as well. And there's a much longer version of that story that if you want to ask me about later, I'm happy to share with you. But at the time of my first going on staff with this church, in my understanding, secret churches were really just regular, Bible-believing, evangelical churches that made an extra effort in all that they did to what some have called put the cookies on the lower shelf which means to suggest that if we'll just make the truth of God a little bit more accessible and a little bit more attractive in some ways, that we can get more people to come to church. Seeker-sensitive is another term that's used to describe this approach to church sometimes. And that whole thing, seeker church, uh, is seeker-sensitive churches, is usually considered part of what's a bigger movement called the church growth movement, which is a church model that's really still alive and kicking today in many areas. But whatever we call it, One of its main strategic elements is trying to make church more attractive and attractional so that more people would come to church and so that more people would give their lives to Jesus. And there's nothing wrong innately with any of those objectives. And I want to be charitable and I want to be clear that I believe there are really good God-fearing people serving and worshiping Jesus in many of the seeker-modeled churches around our country and around the world. In the best of seeker churches, they are working hard to make the truth of God accessible to those who might not otherwise ever go to church. In the best seeker churches, they're working hard to invite in those who have little to no background with a church or with religious concepts or experiences at all. And in the best of seeker churches, once their people have trusted in Jesus, they're working hard to make sure that they disciple those who are new in faith so that they don't remain spiritual infants forever. So that's my charitable description of what the best of seeker churches pursue. And praise God for churches like that. 
But what happens in a great many other seeker churches, for various reasons, despite the genuinely good intentions of their well-meaning pastors, is something different entirely. In many seeker churches, we've changed the tone of the teaching of God's word so much so that we've removed the sting of conviction for sin that's meant to accompany God's offer of grace. In many seeker churches, We've stripped away all the Christian symbols on and in the buildings that we meet in so that they don't feel churchy, so that they don't offend anyone, and so that we can be more attractional to non-Christians. But when we take the crosses down to be less offensive to non-Christians, we risk offending God and showing ourselves to be embarrassed of the cross that he suffered on in our place for our sins to save us. In many secret churches, we're only willing to speak of Jesus as the gentle, loving lamb because it's not politically correct or attractional enough to speak of him as the just and holy lion who cannot not judge sin. But when we only speak of Jesus as the lamb, we risk introducing non-Christians to some other Jesus, one that isn't really in the Bible. In many secret churches, we choose not to teach some parts of the Bible at all for risk of offending people with the gospel of Jesus and the other hard truths of his word. But in doing so, we show ourselves to be ashamed of the gospel and we show ourselves convinced that the power to draw sinners into a saving relationship with Jesus is dependent upon our words, not God's. In many secret churches, there's a significant focus on entertaining people in the services and programs in order to draw in more non-Christians, but too often this translates into filling our churches with more consumers than disciples. People more convinced that Jesus is part of their story than they are of being part of his story. In many secret churches, we've introduced people to a self-help version of Christianity that's focused on their comfort, their preferences, and their best life now as defined by culture rather than by God and his word, a version of Christianity that equates to a fire insurance faith, a version of Christianity that celebrates only the starting line of faith by some simple acknowledgement about Jesus and then leaves people alone to live their lives as they see fit, again, not desiring to bother anyone with biblical maturity's promise of greater glory for God and greater joy for its suitor. I've sat in secret churches Uh, secret church services a great many times with a deep pit in my stomach worried about whether the message being preached that day is just enough to give people the false assurance that they're good with God and also just enough to actually condemn them to an eternity apart from him in hell. And as I read our text in Hebrews 5 and 6 today, I wonder if the author of Hebrews had a similar pit in his stomach during much of what he preached to his congregation out of a concern for the very souls of his people. And unfortunately, in our day, it's all too common, not just in the worst of seeker churches, but in a hundred other Christian denominations and church varieties to find lukewarm churches filled with people where the name of Jesus is used and claimed, but where his word is so watered down and misused that it's almost unrecognizable. I imagine the author of Hebrews with great love for his people as, as their pastor seeing in a similar way the writing on the wall of this lukewarmness And with a great desire to see them escape the faith that would come with that, uses strong words with them and with us, even risking to offend, so that he might, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reach the dull of hearing and call them to a life of repentance and forgiveness, of grace and purpose, of discipline, of joy, of maturity. And so as we pick up our text again in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we see him encourage his people with this same sort of godly charge, saying, therefore, 
Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, from the second half of verse 1 on through verse 3, the author of Hebrews is talking specifically about the foundation of faith he's wanting to encourage them to build upon as they strive for maturity. Said another way, these verses represent a description of the milk. And we're going to spend a whole sermon talking about the importance and meaning of these foundational truths that he's mentioning in verses 2 and 3 next week. But for now, where I want to focus is on the first half of verse 1, because it's really the point that our text has been building to this whole time. In verses 11 through 14, the author of Hebrews is exhorting these doubting Christians to clean out their ears, to listen up, to really consider the depth of their faith in Jesus, and to realize the eternal danger that they're actually in. And then in 6.1, he prescribes to them the godly and faithful way forward, urging them to leave the elementary matters of doctrine and faith in Christ and to go on to maturity. So here in 6.1, he's teaching us plainly now what we've been saying and arguing for since the beginning of our time today, that maturity matters and that our calling as Christians requires us to fight for maturity in Christ. Sound City, do we believe that? Do you personally believe that? Do you believe that part of what it means to be a Christian is to chase hard after God and to fight for maturity and knowledge and wisdom of him and to fight for ever deeper relationship with him? Or are you content being content and comfortable being comfortable right where you're at in your relationship with God right now? As you reflect on that and consider where your heart really is on that question, let me lead us through a little surveying through just a few scriptures outside of Hebrews to see what they have to say about the importance of fighting for maturity. And so we don't run out of time, which we would because there are so many examples of this that we could pull from. I'm just going to stick to a few select examples from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Starting in the book of Romans, in one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Romans 12:2, the Apostle Paul commands us who claim the name of Jesus as Lord to not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing we might discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is precisely what the author of Hebrews is saying to us in our text this week, that our calling as Christians requires that we fight for maturity in him. Paul is saying that by testing, meaning by constant practice, by chasing maturity, by living out our faith, we will learn to increasingly discern the will of God. That by fighting for maturity in him, we will grow in godly wisdom and increasingly know what is good and acceptable and perfect. How does that sound? And that by ever striving to grow in Christ, we'll have developed all the faculties we need to increasingly live lives that honor God in our every word, in our every thought, in our every deed, in our every motive. In the next passage, in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul tells us to not be children in our thinking, to be Infants in evil, but in our thinking to be mature. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3, he instructs the Thessalonian Christians and us, saying, Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that, you, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing now, that you would do so more and more. The Apostle Paul again 
teaching what seems to be a regular and really important part of his message to those who would profess the name of Christ, namely that part of their calling as followers of Jesus is to strive for maturity in him and to do so more and more and more. In Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul tells the Christians in the Colossian church of his prayers for them that they would go on to maturity in faith, saying this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in, to live in all of life, to live all of life in, a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, see also growing and maturing, in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, Again, see, maturing, perseverance in that word, and patience with joy. Now, later in the same chapter, in verse 28, Paul goes even further, telling us that he's made it a top priority of his ministry to proclaim Jesus and to warn everyone with the wisdom of God that he might encourage everyone to be mature in Christ. And this is so important to Paul that he says in the very next verse that he toils and struggles with all the power of God in him to present everyone mature in Christ. Don't miss the significance of this. Verse 29, for I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul uses a word here, energian, which is translated energy in our English translation that's only used eight times in the entire New Testament and always by Paul himself to describe this unique spiritual strength supplied by Christ that is at work in Paul. And then according to this verse, He takes that special working. He garners every ounce of that power of Christ in him and through toil and struggle uses it for what? To proclaim, to warn, and to fight for the maturity of the Christians that he's been empowered to teach and serve, including us, Sound City. Maturity matters. And it's our calling as Christians to fight for maturity in Christ. As we started our short survey of just a few of these exhortations from Paul concerning fighting for maturity, I asked a question. I said, do you believe that part of what it means to be a Christian is to chase after God and to fight for maturity and knowledge and wisdom of him and to fight for an ever deeper relationship with him? Or are you content with being content right where you are in your relationship with Jesus? Did you come up with an answer yet? What I'm hoping is that after today, after our look at the loving and yet firm push from the author of Hebrews in our passage, and after our look at just a little of the evidence that we find elsewhere in Scripture, that you're at least convinced of this, that wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus today, and in your knowledge and wisdom of him, his calling for you, his calling for me is the same, and it's that calling to fight for maturity in him. I don't really see another way to see what the Scriptures say. I don't see another way how to understand them. The scriptures just don't leave room for being dull of hearing concerning God. They don't leave room for being lukewarm in faith. And we don't have time to go through it now, but if you want to write this down to check my work later to see if that's really true, look at Revelation 3, verses 15 through 22 later, if you want another striking argument on this whole thing. Revelation 3, 15 through 22. Let me say it another way. My hope before any of us leave here today, is that none of us will be able to forget that wherever we are in our relationship with Jesus, that his strong word to us is the same. And it's this, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And as the Apostle Paul so regularly added, and keep doing so more and more and more. But what it's going to look like 
to follow his call to discipleship, his call to perseverance, his call to press deeper is going to look a little different for each one of us depending on where we are in our relationship with Jesus right now. The first two groups of folks in the room that I want to speak to are our milk drinkers, to use the language of the text. The first group of milk drinkers I want to address are those who are genuinely new to faith, including those who may be even very brand new to faith. Maybe like today you decided this is a God that I can give my life to. Well, for you, this message is really important, but in a more positive way than perhaps for some of the others that are sitting here right now. Because for you, you're right where you should be. You're newish in your faith, and so you're rightly focused on the elementary matters of doctrine and faith. You're rightly, you've rightly got a long way to go in growing deeper in your relationship with Jesus and in your knowledge of his word. You're rightly just beginning to learn what it means to pursue progress in the life of faith in every area of your life, and you're beginning to understand that belonging to Jesus is a whole life reorientation and a joyful, if, not, if challenging, calling to maturity in Christ. And you're rightly beginning to learn that progress, not perfection, is the goal of the life of the sinner saint. For you, the appropriately milk-drinking bunch among us today, much of this message is preventative in nature. But it's an important message nonetheless, as, as it's a message that might just save you one day from becoming content with being content in your relationship with Jesus, from becoming dull of hearing in a sluggish and lazy way concerning the things of God and from failing to pursue ever deeper relationship with Jesus and ever greater wisdom in him through his word. For you, the questions that you want to walk away with thinking about are, who are the mature and maturing Christians in your life that you'll ask to be your guide, that you'll give permission to, to push on you and not let you settle for milk any longer than you should? In other words, Leave here today and go find some good mature and maturing Christians whose leadership and guidance you trust and whose you're willing to submit to. Secondly, you'll want to consider how God would have you order your life in such a way as to increasingly put him first in all things. And that includes prioritizing time for learning how and then practicing the spiritual disciplines outlined in the scripture that are meant to compose our spiritual diet day to day, like Bible study and prayer and serving and giving and fasting and rest. Now, there's a second group of milk drinkers in the room today as well. And that group is those to whom this passage in Hebrews was primarily written. And it's for you that the writer of Hebrews is most burdened, as am I, as one of your pastors. It's this group that likely includes some of us who are knowingly doubting Jesus and faith in him, or those who, through their actions and inactions and life choices, are already denying him. Or those who Jesus describes in Matthew 15, 8, where he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now for you, if you're part of this group, the exhortation from God, from the author of Hebrews, and from me as one of your pastors is this, to press deeper or risk falling away. To press deeper or risk falling away. I was talking with a good friend of mine who's part of our church family the other day, and He'd been struggling with a particular sin struggle in his life for quite some time. And he'd been really feeling low about it and uh, feeling far from God, even really frustrated with God that God hadn't taken this away from him. And at one point in the conversation, I said to him, I, I get your frustration, but you've got to do your part of the work too, right? And so we opened up the word together. We looked at Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says this, 
He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as we looked at these verses together, I said to him, the yoke is easy, but there's still a yoke. And the burden is light, but there's still a burden, right? And the lights just like went on for him. And he's been walking in pretty significant freedom from that sin and even a few others now since then as well. Now, I'm not taking credit for that. That was God's work through the power of his Holy Spirit and through the truth of his word. But what my friend had realized in that moment was the same truth reflected in a couple verses that we looked at earlier. First in Luke 46, where Jesus was saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And then in Matthew 7, 21, where we heard Jesus say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The truth that my friend had realized is that there's a direct relationship between believing in Jesus and living for Jesus. Between claiming faith and living out your faith in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the great lie of the enemy that so many think that belief and faith can exist as mere mental assent detached from corresponding action. And it's the same thing that the author of Hebrews is rejecting in those who he's calling dull of hearing milk drinkers. The truth my friends saw and the question God would have you wrestle with if you find yourself in this dull of hearing milk drinker category today is do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? And are you willing to heed his wake-up call to you today to stop covering your ears, to listen to his voice, and to just commit to doing the work of following him in life, to commit to doing the work of pressing deeper and trusting that as you do, he'll bless and affirm your good works born of faith in him, and he'll get the glory for that, and that you'll grow in maturity and joy because of it. So for any dull-of-hearing milk drinkers in the house today, God's asking you to press deeper and to fight for maturity in him. And the question for you is, will you choose to do it? Will you choose to do it? The final category of people in the room uh, today are those who already get it. Those who are mature in faith and still fighting to mature more and more. And for you, I'm hoping that this, me that this message has been an affirmation and a comfort to you. And a reminder that you're following in the very good steps of the Apostle Paul who in Philippians 3.12 said, it's not that I'm claiming to obtain perfection yet, but I press on to maturity to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. For you, the solid food eaters, as the author of Hebrews calls you, this message ought to be a reminder to you of one of our core values here at Sound City as well, which is progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection which comforts us with the truth that the maturity we're being called to in God's word is not a destination that we can reach on this side of eternity. And that ought to give us great joy and peace, knowing that all that's required of us is that we run the race of following Jesus as his disciples faithfully, with endurance, with perseverance, and in doing so, bring godly integrity to our claim that we belong to him. For the mature and the maturing crowd in here today, God wants to encourage you in your constant practicing of your faith so far. 
and to lovingly admonish you to fight for more, to fight for maturity all the more until the day that we meet him. Trusting that as you do, your knowledge and your wisdom and your joy and your peace in the Lord will increase and your discerning of his will and of what's good and perfect will increasingly guide your life. What good news that is for all of us, that regardless of where we find ourselves in our relationship with Jesus today, that this is the life that is offered to us if we'll just take our hands off our ears, if we'll listen to him, if we'll in faith obey his word, and if we'll fight for maturity in him. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.6, to all Christians of genuine and active faith in him, saying, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Sound City mature, maturity matters. Maturity matters, and it's our calling as Christians to fight for that maturity in Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. With that, let's uh, turn our time uh, to a response to God's word and to what God's placed on our hearts today during our time together. As we often do, we'll respond in several different ways. And the first way we'll respond is through giving. And so if our financial stewards are ready, they can go ahead and come. And we don't want to be a people who worship the money that God's entrusted to us. But we want to be a people who worship with the money that God's entrusted to us. And that's why we give generously to the work that God is doing in and through us here at Sound City. But if you're our guest, please know there's no expectation that you partake in that. You're certainly welcome to. We wouldn't want to rob you of that opportunity, but you're not obligated to in any way. Second, let me offer up a few questions and prayer points that are drawn out of the message for us to consider during our community group times this week and for personal reflection as well. I'll read these for us. Question number one, honestly self-assess where you are today in your pursuit of Christian maturity. Are you a dull of hearing milk drinker, not desiring to grow, a godly milk drinker actively seeking growth, or a mature and fighting for more? And explain your answer. Number two, if someone else were to look at your commitments to common Christian disciplines like Bible study and prayer and fasting and giving and using your gifts to serve, living in biblical community, fleeing from known sin, committing to a local church, etc., would they determine that you were someone who was fighting for maturity in Christ? And explain your answer. Number three, regardless of where you're at in your pursuit of maturity in Christ now, prayerfully consider the one or two things that you believe God would have you do or do more to fight for maturity in him. And if you struggle to think of any, uh, are you willing to ask some more mature folks in their faith to help you? A couple prayer points for us as well. Number one, pray for yourself and for our church that all would repent of any spiritual sluggishness and dullness of hearing. Number two, ask for yourself and for our church that the Holy Spirit would empower and equip each one of us to with joy fight for maturity in Christ. And number three, pray for yourself and our church that each one of us would become diligent students of God's word and truths for God's glory and for our joy and maturity in him. Now, another way that we'll respond today is through communion. We're all Christians. Even if you just gave your life to Jesus today, are welcome to receive the Lord's Supper. Now, this is what we sometimes call a memorial meal for us, the bread reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us, and the juice and wine reminding us of his blood shed for us. And we'll respond through communion uh, as we also respond through song and worship to Jesus, and we'll do that right after we pray. So when you're ready, why don't you go ahead and stand with me, and then I'll pray, and then we'll 
respond. Lord God, in your good word, you call us over and over again, not to an easy life, but to a life of joy in so much as we're willing to follow you and chase after ever deepening relationship with you and ever growing wisdom in you. I pray that you would make us into a people that devote their whole lives to living out those very things and that not one of us would from this day forward ever be dull of hearing concerning you. I pray that we would be a people who would run this race faithfully, committed to fighting for maturity in you each and every day until you call us home. And I pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.